And hello and welcome to this week's edition of Novak Now here on the Nachum Siegel Network. The final pre-2020 election Novak Now uh, edition. And um, it's time to sweep away all the tangential analysis. It's time to keep focus on what I'm expecting for tomorrow and to explain why. Um, For those of you who have listened to Novak Now not just this year, but in the last couple of years, you probably won't be surprised by many of my conclusions. But even if you have, uh, it's time to really clarify them and really make it clear what I'm expecting and, and what, what we can all expect for the election. Um, I have really never doubted too much the fact that Donald Trump would win re-election. Uh, and by that I mean, obviously, since he won the election the first time. Uh, many of you may know that in May of 2016, I publicly predicted in my national column on CNBC.com that Donald Trump would win the election. Um, before you crown me as an amazing genius or prognosticator, the two mitigating factors on that um, prediction have to be announced, which is that up until then, <laughs> up until about March, I was sure that he would not win even the nomination. Um, at around March came around, I figured he would win the nomination, and then it took me another month or so to have the guts to go national with the prediction that he would win the election. The second mitigating factor is that I came to that conclusion uh, after reading the arguments of people who had made the conclusion that he would win well before I did. Uh, I was very convinced, after I double-checked on my own, the arguments of people like Scott Adams. For those of you who don't know him, he's the Dilbert cartoonist, but also a very brilliant um, uh, writer and a brilliant... uh, He does great videos every day on his Twitter feed, which is is at Scott Adams Says. I I recommend it highly. There were other people as well who convinced me. Uh, They weren't trying to talk to me personally, but they had written stuff earlier that I read and I thought about and I thought, you know, they really have a good point. And then I really rethought things. But as soon as Donald Trump was was elected and and got a few months and then a few months into office, I really thought that he would be reelected with the because the Democrats spent those that first year, for example, let's say the first year of his his presidency of 2017, not doing the things they needed to do, which was cultivating a winning candidate, um, focusing on how they could win over the voters that had voted for who had voted for Trump in 2016. Instead, they you know put all of their efforts into impeachment efforts. Not only the Ukraine impeachment effort that started in 2019, because remember, of course, the Russia collusion hoax. Really, there's really no, uh, no other word for it. The, the lie, the false narrative that the Democrats pushed for so many years was where they put their efforts. They put their efforts in all of that instead of getting another candidate and instead of really, really hitting those states where Donald Trump surprisingly beat Hillary Clinton, especially in the Midwest. And they should have been hitting those areas. They should have been looking for a candidate from those areas. They did end up choosing Joe Biden, who technically is from what was born in one of those states that Trump surprisingly won. He won Pennsylvania. But Joe Biden is really not a creature of the Midwest in in any way other than maybe some of his mannerisms. He's really not. He's really much more of a Philly guy, even though he was born in Scranton, lived in Delaware. But Delaware is, is pretty much in the shadow of Philadelphia in a lot of ways, for those of you who know your American geography or the way, the way it works. So anyway, my point is <clears throat> I, I would have been compelled to give a Democratic challenger to Donald Trump 
a chance to win this election years ago if one had emerged who I really thought was different in the way that Bill Clinton was different from previous Democrat candidates in 1992. And, you know, that's a big reason why he's the last man in American history to have defeated an incumbent president. You might think that Bill Clinton was just like all the other Democrats, but he really wasn't in many ways. And the most important way that he wasn't the same is that he really promoted himself as someone who was in favor of policies that his past, his predecessors in the Democratic Party hadn't been pushing. He really pushed the Democrats back to a very pro-capitalist message, for those of you who remember. He had a much more optimistic outlook on stuff. He didn't predict the end of the world <laughs> if George H.W. Bush was reelected, like Walter Mondale did with Reagan and you know, other Democrat challengers had done, and even some Republican challengers when they went up against incumbents and lost. So that was something I was looking for. And when I didn't see that by the end of 2017 or going into 2018, I felt no reason to change my mind about Donald Trump being reelected. So yes, I know the national polls, and we're going to talk about polls very briefly here. Not, I guess not that briefly, but I'm going to talk about the national polls briefly. I'll talk about the polls that are more important in more depth. I know that those polls said, you know, that Donald Trump was in this kind of big trouble and, and all of that. But again, that there's a simple model for this, which I don't hear a lot of people talking about. To defeat an incumbent president, the challenger has to have some organic support of his or her own. In other words, you can have a, you can have a movement that's going to vote against an incumbent president, and most of the people going to the polls are voting against that incumbent president and not for the candidate. But you got to have at least 10% of the voting public I guess there's about 128 million people who are going to vote or something like that, or maybe up to 130 million. So I think you would need to have at least 13 million voters in America today to be voting for Joe Biden and not just against Donald Trump. Literally just, they would vote for him no matter who he was running against with, you know, with hardly any exception. And honestly, I don't think there's 1.3 million, let alone 13 million Americans like that right now. I, there may not even be a million. There may not even be half a million Americans who are voting for, literally for Joe Biden. In other words, they want Biden over almost any other choice. I don't think there's any, I'll, you know, I can't think of anybody like that in my own life, but I'll, I'll give someone the benefit of the doubt. Maybe there's a million of those people in this country, but far below the number that I would expect that are needed for Joe Biden to win. So that's one of the major criteria right there. The other criteria, and I, that now I will note a poll and all the polls here, because here there's no dichotomy. All the polls, including the ones that are very favorable to Donald Trump and those that are very unfavorable to Donald Trump, have always put President Trump's approval in between that 40 to 50 percent range throughout his presidency. There's been one or two that have been below 30, below 40 here and there uh, for very short periods of time. There's been one or two that have been above 50 for very short periods of time. But we can agree, because the numbers are there, that every single poll the best and the worst for Donald Trump over the last four years has been between the 40 and 50 range with, with, a, with a very small exception of that at, at, at certain times. And history tells us that a president with an approval rating at even as low as 40%, but as long as it stays there and higher, is very, very difficult, if not impossible, to defeat when he runs for re-election. There's a couple of examples of this, but one of them, and a really good one, is... George H.W. Bush, who had only a 37% approval rating on election eve in 1992, and he lost. But remember, he did not lose by a lot. 
Bill Clinton only beat him by a few percentage points in the popular vote. And it was a close election. And he had a 37% approval rating. If it had his approval rating been in the 40s, he would have won re-election. And that would have been a, very, a, a pretty clear situation there. His son, George W. Bush, also did not have an approval rating at 50%, but he, ha- he did have an approval rating in the 40s, or the high 40s, or at least, you know, maybe probably 50% even on election day, and he won, of course, a second term. So that's another thing that I've noticed the entire time. If I had seen Donald Trump with sub-40% approval ratings throughout any long period this year or any long period of any year, really, I would have been much more um, inclined to believe he could lose the re-election battle, but that was not the case. So that's about all I want to talk about when it comes to polls and that, the, you know, the, the history of polls, because one of the big purposes of this edition of Novak Now and the Nachum Siegel Network is to remind all of you that the polls, as I've told you on previous editions, the polls are really not there to tell us who's going to win an election. Most of the pollsters are working for either a political party, they're working for a television network or a newspaper, and they have a much different role sometimes than accurately predicting an election result. Some of them are there to help a candidate raise money and get support. So they'll pump up the numbers or show only the polls that are more favorable to that particular candidate if they're working for that candidate or working for people who support that candidate. Then you have the polls that are very much designed to help the television networks improve ratings, to help the television networks avoid the hard job of covering elections. If all you have to do as a reporter or an editor or a producer is quote numbers in a poll, that's easy to do. Covering the issues, really getting down to the brass tacks of what people are talking about in the policies, that's hard work. Covering a poll is not hard work, especially when you pay someone else to do the poll for you. And these television networks now know very clearly who their viewers support in elections. So they can do two things there. They can avoid the hard work by having a pollster basically and, and have, have it make polls the only thing they talk about in their coverage. And they can also talk about polls that will make their viewers happy and make them want to come back to the station or click on the story. So that's why you can't pay attention to them. But there's another reason why you can't pay attention to them, because even if polls are conducted on the up and up, even if you have a pollster or pollsters who really want to give you the most accurate picture possible and and are really thinking about predicting things correctly, and their paycheck, let's say their paycheck completely rode on them being within one or two points of, of the actual election result. I don't think there's any pollster who actually gets paid that way, by the way. But let's say that were the case. Even then, you shouldn't pay too much attention to the polls because polls sometimes just can't see the forest for the trees. There are certain things that the polls are still bound by the laws of mathematics, and that's great. We should, they, should, they should be. But sometimes mathematics t- does not tell you the whole story. You need to know the realities on the ground and you need to know the history of this country and you need to know the culture of different regions of this country. Now, mathematically, before they count any votes, you know that South Carolina and Massachusetts could be, mathematically, they could be won by the same candidate. But that is not going to happen and probably not in my lifetime (laughs) 
because you know that the people of South Carolina, the overwhelming majority of the voters, will not vote the same way as the people of Massachusetts. That's just the way it works. Now, that's an easy one. <laughs> that's an easy one that even uh, someone who's totally got their head in the, in the mathematics of polls and in numbers and not really thinking about culture will still know that, what I just said about South Carolina and Massachusetts. But will they know the following? And you've heard this on, f- on past editions of Novak now. Will they know that states like Ohio and Iowa are so indicative of how the rest of the country is going to go? And I say the answer to that question is no. I don't think they know that. Because, for example, it's pretty clear in my mind that President Trump will win Ohio and Florida. And I just don't think you can win Ohio and Florida, two very, very predictive, two very, very representative states of the rest of the country. I just don't think you can win those two states and not win the election. Mathematically, you can. And if you look at polls, 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 polls all the time, you can say there's no proof of that. But if you really understand the country, and if you really understand places like Ohio and Florida... You know what I'm talking about. You know what I'm talking about. You can say you don't think Trump's going to win the election, but then you would have to say, oh, but I don't think Jake is right about Trump winning Ohio and Florida. But you can't say, if you really know the country, it's impossible for someone to walk in and say, oh, yeah, uh, Biden can lose Ohio and Florida and still win the election. It's just not the way America is. Now, why do so many pollsters not know this? Or why do so many people who follow the polls not know this? Well, they haven't traveled the country and lived in the country in the way that I have. I'm not saying I'm some kind of predictive genius. I literally had to live and work in Ohio for a couple of years to to learn about that state. I literally had to visit Florida enough and talk to people there enough and live in the South as a child enough to know what Florida represents and know how it's different from the other Southern states, but it's got some things that are similar to it, the whole thing. I've had some experiences that other people haven't had, especially in this business. The news business and the political pundit business is dominated by people who have grown up and lived their whole lives in New York, Los Angeles, Chicago, or Washington, mostly New York and Washington. And the journalism profession has a higher percentage of journalists who are based in D.C. and New York than ever before. It's kind of counterintuitive, right? You would think that with the internet and broadband that journalists could be able to work anywhere and live anywhere and do it. It's not the case. It's getting more and more concentrated in New York and Washington, D.C. for journalists, which is very much detrimental to the profession of journalism. You can't cover a country properly if everyone lives and works in just two cities. Not the way it works, folks. It's not the way you do a, a, a true journalism. And sending reporters out to the middle of the country or or further parts of the country once in a while from a D.C. or New York base is also not so good because they're still looking at it from a New York and Washington-tinged perspective. So I urge everyone to understand that whatever the polls say, you have to take a look at where things are going in a couple of states, in a couple of indicative places, and feel where there's any kind of strength going on. Now, you can say that Biden has got these great poll numbers, but there's nobody I know, including people, you know, including people who are voting for Biden, who are really that enthusiastic about him. Now, mathematically, you can make a good argument that an unenthusiastic vote for Biden is just as good as an enthusiastic vote for Trump. True. But you're assuming the vote. You're assuming the vote. Folks, it is almost abundantly clear 
that the election day turnout, and, and uh, I guess more than half of Americans are going to ha- have, have voted already by, ele- by election day, but that doesn't matter. You still have this huge amount of key votes. The election will be decided on election day, okay, not in the pre-election votes. That will set, set the stage for some states to, to go a certain way. But we won't know who's won the key states until the election day in-person vote on election day on Tuesday. And when you see these Trump rallies, and when you see these people waiting hours in the cold or in the rain, and, and not, not only the Trump rallies where the president is showing up, but the impromptu Trump rallies where people are just starting Trump car and truck caravans all across the country. When you see that, you know there's no doubt these people will show up to the polls on election day. They'll show up in the polls with tremendous enthusiasm. They'll be there. And an unenthusiastic Biden voter or an unenthusiastic voter who's person who's thinking about voting for Biden, not all of them will show up the way that all the Trump enthusiastic voters will show up. There are indications that the key demographic groups that usually decide elections for the Democrats in their favor are down this year. And it's not even a question of whether you believe the polls or not. You can see it. You can see that college-age students, because so many campuses are closed or have reduced student bodies on campus, you can see that the college area vote is way down. A lot of these kids are living at home, so they're voting in their home states instead of in the college, on, on, on their college campuses, in places like Ohio, and places like North Carolina, places like Michigan that have massive university populations in normal years, but the COVID crisis has sent them back home to New York, New Jersey, and other states that were not really that competitive for either candidate. We are seeing that the African-American vote, which is always so crucial for the Democrats to win elections, is through the floor. It's not doing well. It's very low. We also know that there's a higher percentage of African-Americans who will vote for President Trump this time anyway, so they really needed a big turnout of African-Americans who will vote Democrat to to push back on that. And, and, and the early voting is showing us, again, this isn't a poll, these are real numbers that we can look at. The early, vo- the early voting totals are showing us that African-American turnout, especially in some of these key swing states like North Carolina, is down. It's down. And that's a huge problem for the Democrats. But again, just get away from the numbers for a second. And if you walk the streets or drive through the highways of Ohio, you know that President Trump's winning Ohio. And if you look at the early voting totals and the way things have been going in early voting in Florida, it's always going to be close. No one's going to win Florida by more than three percentage points. I'd be shocked if anyone ever does in the next few election cycles. But you can see from the early voting totals that the Democrats don't have the pre-election day lead that they need to defeat Donald Trump. And again, if you know your American geography, you know that Ohio and Florida aren't going for the loser. Okay? Doesn't happen. Doesn't happen. Now, I want to throw another state into the mix because it tells us about some other regions of the country, and that's Iowa. Now, Iowa is a very important state for a reason you may not be completely thinking about, but as soon as I explain it to you, you'll, you'll, you'll know what I'm talking about and you'll probably agree. The voters of Iowa get a look at the candidates more than any other state in this country. Iowa voters on average, are probably the most informed, at least as, about the personalities and the appearances of candidates more than any other state because of the Iowa caucuses being the first election 
challenge, the first election primary, I know it's called a caucus, so it's not literally a primary, but the Iowa caucuses are literally how election, how candidates get started. They'll, they'll visit two states, Iowa and New Hampshire. New Hampshire is a close second to Iowa as far as that's concerned. But Iowa requires more traveling. It's a much bigger state than New Hampshire. And Iowa has a lot more pre-caucus events that go on for more than a year before their election, their, their caucuses. So the people of Iowa really know Joe Biden and Donald Trump better than maybe anybody. And that is why the candidate that wins Iowa in the national election or the candidate that's leading there going, on, going into the actual general election is usually going to win. And a very, very important poll, a poll that I trust more than others, the Seltzer poll for the Des Moines Register over the weekend gave Donald Trump a seven-point lead in Iowa. He's going to win Iowa. I never really had any doubt that he was going to win Iowa, but now some of the people who had their hanging, that were hanging their hats on some more of the unreliable polls know it too. And Iowa is, again, it's a swing state. Barack Obama won it in his elections. And Donald Trump won it last time. And it's not only a case of Iowa being a bellwether about informed voters or voters that have really thought about it, but Iowa is very likely going to tell you how some of its nearby states are going to vote. Iowa is pretty indicative of a lot of parts of Wisconsin, Iowa is indicative of a lot of parts of Michigan. Iowa is indicative in some ways of some parts of Ohio, not a lot, but a few. So when Iowa tells you that Donald Trump's got a nice, comfortable lead in their state to win, you can bet that he's probably going to win some of those neighboring states as well. Now, I'm going to do a little bit of electoral college math uh, uh, math for you here. Many of you know you need 270 electoral college votes to win the presidency. Donald Trump is going to need to win one of the following four states to win the presidency. And each one of them is up in the air. Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, Michigan, or Minnesota. I believe that Donald Trump, despite what some people are hoping for and praying for in other states, will win Florida, will win Arizona, and will win North Carolina. That puts him at 260. He needs 10 more. He can get that 10 by winning Minnesota, which is worth 10 electoral votes. He can get that 10 by winning Wisconsin, which is worth 10. And then he can win what he needs and then some by winning Michigan, 16 electoral college votes. And Pennsylvania, the big one, worth 20 electoral college votes. You, if you believe that Joe Biden is going to win, you believe he's got to win all four of those states. Because any one of those victories for Trump, and he's got it. I don't believe, based on... What we're seeing, even some of the polls, that Donald Trump's going to lose all four of those states. I think he will win actually two of them. Right now, if I really had to bet, I would say those two are Wisconsin and Michigan. But I think Donald Trump has an excellent chance to win Pennsylvania as well. And I think of those four states, he probably has the least likely chance to win Minnesota. But I would not be surprised in the least if he wins Minnesota. So in other words, Donald Trump could win all four of them. So... My feeling is that is the real, if you're going to be focused on the math and you want to focus on just the numbers, that's what I would pay attention to. Pay attention to those four states and how they're going. If Donald Trump is clearly winning any one of them early in the evening, let's say at 9 or 9.30, then maybe you can go to sleep and, and know that he's won. 
or if he isn't winning any of them, <laughs> and it's looking like Joe Biden's got the ball clearly, then you can go to sleep knowing he didn't win. But that's where we're going. But again, don't get too caught up before election night, that is. On election night, you can be all about the numbers. That's fine. But don't get too caught up in just that for now, because, again, <laughs> you win Ohio, you're winning Iowa, you're going to win one of those four other Northwest, uh, Midwestern states. It's just the way the culture is. Now, every state has its unique characteristics, and I'm not saying that everybody thinks the same in all those states put together, but it's really, I mean, to put it in a New York terms, for those of you who are listening from the New York area, which I assume is most of you, folks, it's kind of like saying, well, <laughs> you're going to win Brooklyn, and you're going to win 60% of the votes in Brooklyn, and you, you know, you, how, many of that, how many of the votes will that translate into Queens? I think that if you win 60% of the votes in Brooklyn, you got a really good chance to get at least 45 to 50%, I would say more than 50% of the votes in Queens, right? That's just the way things are. And you need to look at the Midwest like that in some ways. Again, it's not quite the same. It's not completely analogous, but it's, but it's similar. So anyway, that is what I want all of you to, to think about and understand, that you have cultural shifts that are going on. Now, why, did, why is Donald Trump doing as well as he's doing in the Midwest compared to so many Republican candidates who for so long couldn't win any of the states I just mentioned? And the reason is, Donald Trump, I think, has pretty much delivered for those states, but he's more importantly, he's, he's talked about it. You know, you can have presidents who do great things for great amounts of the country, but if they don't talk about it and they don't remind people about it, I don't, and if it isn't bought by a decent percentage of, the, of those folks he's talking about, it doesn't work. And Donald Trump has talked about bringing manufacturing jobs and American jobs back to the Midwest for so, for so many years now that it's an accepted fact that he has done that for so many of the voters who, who think about it and listen to him. And I think that the same thing is true with the African-American vote. President Trump isn't going to win 40% of the African-American vote. He won't win 30%. But he's going to do better than he did last time, which was already better than Mitt Romney or John McCain did. And I think he's going to get a nice number of the African-American vote because he's been talking about what he has done for the African-American community for a long time. And now you have even liberal publications like the New York Times admitting that black men, not so much black women, but black men, a lot of them are giving Donald Trump uh, a good look and are, are voting for him. So it's about how you talk to people. It's about how you address them. It's about how persuasive you can be when you're doing it. But one of the key aspects of persuasion is just giving, them you, giving you their, their time. It's kind of like if you're going out on a date with someone and they don't look at their phone every five seconds and they look at you, they're making a pretty persuasive argument that that's a good person for you to keep dating. So you may not think that Donald Trump speaks very persuasively at any given time, but if he's going to say 10 times a week that he's done great things for African-Americans and 10 times a week that he's brought jobs back to the Midwest from China, it's going to be, it's a pretty big part of the persuasion puzzle. It's a very big, important piece of that puzzle. And he's been able to do that very well. Folks, Again, I expect Donald Trump to win the election. I can't go on much longer about why the national polls have been wrong for so long. However, what we're seeing in the last couple of days is more of the polls showing a little bit more of a realization, at least the statewide polls, that Donald Trump is going to win. So that has happened. But what you should really ask yourself is not so much why they got it wrong, but why the Democrats would, would put forth a candidate who was not exciting, who could not create a 
cult-like following like Barack Obama and in some ways Bill Clinton did in some ways. Not so much with Bill Clinton, but certainly with Barack Obama. Ask yourselves why they spent so much time focusing on conspiracy theories and hoaxes instead of working on those voters and working on those regions where they lost last time. And ask yourself whether the national media has always been as helpful to the anti-Trump forces as people think, as they seem to think they are. And you put that stuff together and you have a situation where people who understand the country know what the result's going to be. I'm Jake Novak. This has been Novak Now on the Nachum Siegel Network. I hope to speak to you again next week.